But uh, this morning is exciting. We're starting a brand new series that's going to take us through the summer. So from now all the way to September, uh, we're going to be talking about the same sort of elemental thing, uh, and that's language. And we're calling this uh, series Christianese because like any group of people, like any culture, when we get together in clumps and we unify on something, whether that's a business or a religion or anything like that, a language begins to develop. Uh, and we know this because any different part of the country you go to, you're going to see different like, elements of language being used just because the people that have come together there in that unique space begin to speak in their own unique way. The problem is, uh, and especially in Christianity, we tend uh, to over, we, we go too far sometimes with our own sort of speak. And so when people come in here for the first time and we're saying things like, oh, I'm in a season right now, or, or whatever it is, whatever Christianese phrase you want to plug and play there, a lot of times people just go like, I don't know what they are talking about, and I feel on the outside of this. I, I feel like somehow I'm not included because I don't know the same language that they do. I don't understand these phrases uh, and these sayings that they're throwing out, and so I feel a little unwelcomed. Uh, in this place. And this goes for, for everything, not just Christianity, but literally in your business, in your practice, whatever it might be, the language that you use uh, really does matter. Um, so just like with every one of these series, uh, when we started Resonate, I wanted every series uh, that we come up with with the strategy team to both be something that could mess with our, ooh, there we go, hello, he's here. Um, both something that can mess with our hearts, but can also, we can take this away and we can practically use it in something. So here's what I want us to practically be able to take away week after week in this series. Uh, I would love it if we can gather together, we can journey together during this series to learn to communicate more effectively. Um, both to communicate this love of God into our neighborhood and into our world, but just in general. What does it take to get a point across clearly? Because um, that's going to help us in almost every aspect of our life. If we can learn to be clear and, and craft a message that is uniquely clear, then we're going to be better off no matter what. Um, so that's what I'm hoping that we'll be able to practically walk away from. Because in, in all of this stuff, like our faith is a practical faith as well as a heart faith. There's stuff in this Bible, this, this collection of stories that we can actually take into our everyday lives. And so I want to make sure that we're doing that. Um, so that's the takeaway that I want us to do um, from this. So this morning... We're going to talk about words uh, and how in Jesus' tradition, words were really something that actually created worlds. And we're going to talk about the language that Jesus used and how he used it effectively. So let me pray for us, uh, and we're going to jump in to what we're talking about. God, I'm so grateful for this church, for this space. Um, I just pray that as we explore words and really dissect uh, the language that you use, that um, you would cause us to just kind of pause, to slow down the craziness of our lives, to really just to have fun with this, um, to have fun with some of the crazy things we Christians say uh, and dissecting that and pulling it apart. Amen. Um, so like I said, in the old ancient tradition, uh, in, the, in the days that Jesus was roaming around planet Earth, uh, rabbis, these, these the religious teachers, uh, had a saying, and that was that words create worlds. And they really meant this. What's really unique about Jesus and about almost all the other rabbis at that time is that we don't look at Jesus as an author, right? He's not a writer, per se. 
he was an orator, he was a speaker. He would go places and he would speak. And in those days, in that tradition, your disciples were to follow you around, uh, if you're the rabbi, and as you speak, what was most important was not that they would scribble it all down right afterwards and take a bunch of notes. What was important is that the disciples would memorize what the rabbi had to say. Like scrolls, books, all of that kind of stuff were crazy, crazy rare. It was more than likely that in each town you would only have one scripture, one written thing. And one person would come up and they would read from it in the synagogue or in the, in the temple and then they would talk about it. Uh, it. But most of it was just done by speak because very few people could read. And even more than that, the texts were super hard to find. So when we look at the words of Jesus, we have to remember that he's speaking these rather than writing these. That in this tradition, the, the oral tradition, that meant that like literally the way that you speak was oftentimes way more formal than the way that people would write. When Paul was writing the letters, and we have a bunch of these uh, epistles in, in, the, in the scriptures, when he was writing them, he was actually writing those super informally. He would have taken more time on his speeches, the stuff that he would say out loud, that would have been memorized and, and said out loud, but the letters were actually a super casual way of communication back then. So when we look at the tradition of Jesus, we have to look at it that Jesus deeply, deeply cared about the words that he spoke. He deeply, deeply cared about how he spoke those words. I think what's really crazy is if you look in the scriptures and especially in the gospels and we're following Jesus around and we're looking at the red letters, what he actually spoke and said, what we find is a Jesus that is not panicked, that is rarely angry, uh, and that chooses to communicate with people on a very uh, calm and equal level. He is constantly lovingly approaching people in healing ways, and when he communicates with them, he's communicating them lovingly, even in the points where he was calling people out. To the Pharisees, I, I mean, I know they get a really bad rep, but he never directly boots them out of the room. He always keeps them there to say, no, you are a part of this conversation as well. I don't agree with you, I have, I have a much different take on things, but I have to include you in this conversation because you're gonna be around. <laughs> you're not going anywhere, right? And so he would lovingly communicate with them even though they didn't agree with a ton of what it has to say. So the way that we communicate, uh, Jesus really does care about. Uh, we know this because over 85 times in scripture, uh, they, they talk about this thing called tongues. Um, and tongues, if you're in a Pentecostal background, tongues is going to be you're on the floor wailing and going, but that's, that's not the only thing. Uh, the tongues is tongue also stands for language. Um, and, and over 85 times, we're talking about tongues in reference to, like, this is the language that God is using. What we do with our tongues, how we use our words matters in a crazy, crazy way. And Jesus talks about tongues and, and how you should tame your tongue, how you should hold your tongue, what words you should say, what words you shouldn't say, how you should or shouldn't talk about God. There's a really reverent, reverent, like, sort of way of dealing with speech in this tradition. So much so that literally, like, if you were to utter a certain name of God out loud, you could be put to death. They took seriously, like, really seriously, what comes out of our mouth and why are we saying it? One of the Ten Commandments is do not take the Lord's name in vain. That means don't say this out loud in a vain way. And there's only Ten Commandments, guys. So, like, that's, that's a biggie, <laughs> right? What do we actually say? This scripture is one of my favorites uh, because it, it solves itself. So this is in Job, uh, and he's talking about words here, and he says this. He says, uh, doesn't the ear test words 
and the palate taste food, question mark, right? So he's saying, doesn't our ear test the words that we hear just like our mouths taste the palate of food? Don't we, aren't we discerning words on that kind of a level? But he's asking a question, but with a, just a couple verses later, this is hysterical, uh, Job comes back and it looks like he's, he's solved the problem because uh, it's for the ear test words like the palate test food, period. So he's figured it out, right? Like he's saying these words, these words matter and we discern them the same way that we discern taste, right? And words in our day and age, we have to do a really good job of discerning them because words are louder than they've ever been before and they last longer than they ever have before. If you've ever been on Twitter, you know this, right? These words last and matter in a different way. We are in a society right now that the words we choose and the words we say can affect our careers, our lives, our jobs, you name it. If we say the wrong thing, nowadays it lives a whole lot longer than it used to, right? So I think we need to do a good job of discerning language, of actually looking at how we speak and how we talk. Um, and to do that, like, we're just, we're gonna look at this basic sort of building block of the human language, which is the word. Like, words can be very, very fun. We're gonna have a great time this morning uh, with just the funness of words. Um, in different languages, they have different words for things that we don't even have. In France, uh, we talked about this before in here, they have a word called fleur. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I like the little fleur. Uh, fleur is, is literally translated as the art of the stroll, right? In America, we have no need for an art of a stroll, but in France, they literally have a word for how you stroll matters. Uh, in Sweden, there's a word called legom, and legom basically means not too much and not too little. It's sort of the Swedish lifestyle. It's, it's right in the middle, just so. My favorite English word is mustachioed. <laughs> mustachioed is a word that we came up with to describe someone with a mustache. Mustachioed. So in different languages, we have different words for different things, right? And, and, and the, the reason we do is because that context matters. In France, they need a word for the art of the stroll. In America, we seem to need to describe a mustache. It, the context that you are in is going to shape the words uh, that you use. And in different contexts, words don't mean the same thing. I grew up for a brief period of time in Amsterdam. Um, and in Amsterdam, it's a, it's, it's a bilingual society. So everyone speaks like at least two languages. But in Europe, I mean, it's so small. You drive it, literally a 40-minute train ride in the wrong direction. I'm, I'm in Belgium. We're speaking something different, right? So there's all sorts. It's just this melting pot. It's a hugely international um, city. And I went to an international school, uh, which was run by British people. And so I spelt color with a U for a very long time. Um, but when I was there, it was just this hodgepodge of all of these different accents, languages, all that kind of stuff. And the funniest part about Amsterdam, um, if, you're, if you're ever there and you're visiting and you're, you're going around, uh, you'll see like kids playing in the street and they, they won't be speaking English unless they fall or get mad because they always use English swear words. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Like a five-year-old will be playing marbles and miss and they'll be like, like expletive, right? They, because they don't mean the same thing. This literally happened in our church once. My dad was a pastor there, started a church there. Um, and this was in like the late 90s when skits in church were a thing. I'm very glad we've gotten past that. But <laughs> skits in church were a thing. Uh, and so this, uh, this Dutch couple was in charge of like the drama production at the church. 
Uh, and they, they, they did their skit, and they each had a wireless microphone on. Um, and after the skit, they walked backstage, but they didn't know that their mic was still on. And you just heard, and the, the sound guy was like aloof and wasn't there. So you just heard like all this like pop, 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 pop at first. And then you heard like, I can't get this microphone off and like a Dutch accent. And then you just heard a string of American swear words, like you never, like, like they, this was their first language, and the entire church just kind of sat there, like mortified, like, oh my gosh, what just happened? At least the Americans in the house were, the Dutch were just like, ha ha, yes. Um, but that's the thing, like, in, in different contexts, our words mean different things. And it, it, it's an incredible thing. Like, we can use that in powerful ways. We're going to talk about, um, this is actually Pentecost Sunday uh, today in the church calendar. We're going to talk about ways that Jesus used context and language, or the, the Holy Spirit used context and language. And when they combine in the right pattern, you have this explosion, right? You can use language in context, and they play off of each other incredibly beautiful incredibly beautiful ways. I, I think the main issue though in our society right now is that we've taken these really powerful words of Jesus that have their own context, that have an ancient context, that have an ancient filter, and we've tried to bring them into an American suburban society, and in that we lose something in translation, right? The Bible has its own accent. It has its own unique context and culture. And so we have to look back in order to unlock some of that. What we're going to find is once we can do that, once we have those skills, we can bring them into our context in immensely powerful ways. We're just going to lose, we just don't want to lose that accent. We want to keep the Bible's powerful accent. At that same international school uh, in Amsterdam, I had two best friends. One's name was Jonathan, uh, and he was from Indonesia. I'm not even going to attempt um, his uh, accent because I think that's racist, but anyway, um, I, he was Indonesian, and he had a strong accent, and then Connor, uh, who's my Irish friend, had this intense, he was like four feet tall, covered in freckles, uh, just like a firebrand, a little like Irish dude, um, and he had this like intensely strong accent, and so what we would do in a group, uh, and you do this all around the international school, people would just kind of make fun of each other's accents, um, and Connor's would take this very, oh, hi, how you doing? Like, and he was like, just like this really powerful little man. Um, he would like ride his bike, and it, we would lock the bikes in his wee shit in the back. Like, he was just, just this, this powerful man. So we would make fun of each other, and I would do his accent, uh, and then he would never do my accent, and I would be like, Connor, why don't you try the American accent? He's like, no, no, no. And I was like, well, why? And he's like, the American accent is just boring, you know. <laughs> and I was like, it's true. And the same thing applies when we try and take this incredibly exciting Jesus and his accent, and we try and put an American accent on it. It gets boring. The, the fire that Jesus had in his context is the exciting part, right? But too much of it is just, just dumbing it down to our American sort of bland accent. There's another incredible uh, man with a very unique accent. He comes from a speech impediment. This is one of my heroes. Um, this is the gentleman by the name of Lou Frigno. Do we have that? Uh, there he is in all of his glory. Does anybody know what movie this is from? Bonus points. Hercules nailed it. Okay, so this is amazing. In the 80s, Lou Frigno played Hercules, not once, but twice. I have no idea how this movie got a, a sequel, um, but the first one, was so bad, but anyway, so I have to back up and give some context to why I love Lou Frigno so much. Um, one, he was the Incredible Hulk, and the Incredible Hulk was an incredible 
TV show in which they would throw things, just, and he was just like splashing around in water and he's bright green. Um, he had never acted before The Incredible Hulk, but when he got to LA uh, to compete in a bodybuilding um, competition with Arnold Schwarzenegger, by the way, uh, and he lost to him, um, they called him and said, hey, do you want to play The Incredible Hulk? And he said, yes, I have to play The Incredible Hulk. I love comic books. So he goes to the audition, literally opens his mouth, and they're like, okay, you've got the part. Like, all he had to do is kind of speak in the way that he spoke, and then he got the part. Um, but The Incredible Hulk ends, and then Lou Ferrigno's career uh, kind of is at a standstill until Hercules comes around. And basically, if you've never seen this film, which it's on YouTube for free, uh, you can. He plays basically the Incredible Hulk without makeup, um, and he's just Hercules. And, and so anyway, uh, my grandparents lived in Florida uh, when I was a young child. This is from my dad's side. And there was not a lot to do around their retirement um, sort of like uh, facility, right? Like they lived in like a, a communal retired uh, community. Uh, and it's in Florida, and it was in the middle of nowhere in Florida. And I, I don't think I've shared much about my, my dad's side of the family, but um, my dad's side of the family we refer to as the woodshed side of the family. Like, we don't really know um, all that's going on there, uh, but we do know that they are deeply, deeply Southern. Um, when we would go to my grandparents' house, they had one TV and a couple VHSs, and then the only other activity that my grandfather loved to do was go and take his golf cart out into the woods, drink beer, and shoot down trees. This is my southern side of the family. So when we would go, there was only a couple movies that I could watch. Uh, there was only so many times I could watch Grandpa shoot down a tree. And one of those VHSs, some of them were just golf tournaments that were taped, but one of them was <laughs> this fabulous movie uh, with the fabulous Lou Frigno. But there's a, there's a lightsaber in this film. There, there's a point where he throws a bear into space. I'm telling you, watch this movie. <laughs> on YouTube. I was going to put you through the trailer, but it's too bad and too painful uh, and slightly inappropriate, so we're not going to do that. But uh, basically, what, at the very beginning of the movie, you kind of go like, what's, what's off here? And it's not just the bearer into space. It's, it's something is really weird, and it's just sort of that, that feeling you get where you realize, like, oh, oh, I'm going to be watching a bad movie. Like, it, it's not going to get any better. Um, and the thing that's off about it is when Lou talks, in his Hercules speak, he doesn't sound like the Incredible Hulk. He doesn't sound like him. And then if you look even closer, you kind of see that like his mouth is moving at a different pace than the actual narration is going. Um, and that's because they literally dubbed his voice. They wanted Hercules to have this like classic, sort of like old-timey American accent that Lou did not have. He's from the Bronx. Uh, and so they dubbed him over. So the entire movie is this fierce Lou with a very tame sort of, and so you realize very quickly like, ooh, this is dubbed, it's off. And so the whole time you're not really paying attention to what's going on in the movie, you're just paying attention to like, where is his mouth going and how is this not working? And I think just like taking the Jesus with an American accent, we have done an excellent job in our culture and in just the time in history that we're at in dubbing the words of Jesus, right? Like, not letting him actually be himself. There's a whole bunch of stuff that Jesus critiques about empire, about the way that you live your life in a society that, honestly, as Americans, are very difficult to look at. You honestly can't take the context of Jesus, which was this guy who was, like, trying to subvert the powers that be when you are the powerful. And so it's very important for us as we read the Gospels to place ourselves in the shoes of people that need help, that need dignity. 
Because that's who Jesus was speaking to in healing and helping. That's the powerful move of Jesus. It's not just to take Jesus and say, hey, Jesus makes my Orange County life better. Sorry, Orange County people. Orange County people are wonderful. But I'm saying, like, it doesn't, it does, it, he's not just there to increase your suburban life. He's there to critique it and pull it apart and hopefully bring you to a place in which you will view the world differently. And as a result, we can kind of pull the world and make it a better place, right? That's what the powerful words of Jesus do. And, and what's incredible, too, is that God doesn't just want us to look back and in context and say, like, oh, we need to be living in every kind of way, like the old-timey way of doing things, like the ancient people were doing. Because I think we can get caught up in that a lot. Like, it, I'm guilty of it, right? As a pastor, I love to critique a line of scripture and say, actually, hey, the Hebrew word for this is this, or the Greek word for this is this. And so we've been viewing it wrong, and you flip it. And that's all fun, and that's all well and good. But there are times, too, where Jesus really does want to speak to you in your language. He wants you to take this and move it further, to keep going. And I'm telling you guys, the patterns of speech that we have as Christians are sometimes harmful in that. Sometimes they stop us from truly getting into the love and getting into the point. Let's have some fun and let's critique some classic Christianese. And I promise this is the only time in this series we're going to do this, but it has to be done for us to move forward and use the name Christianese. So when you walk into a church, there are a couple of my favorite um, favorite phrases here. Um, one is uh, uh, seasons. We mentioned that. Now, seasons comes from this beautiful thing in the Old Testament where they're like, there's a time for everything. There's a season for everything. Uh, but when we talk about it, we usually talk about it like it's a chunk in our lives, right? And there's power in that. There's also like, there's an inhibiting factor. Uh, what, what else is there? Um, oh, I don't feel led. I don't feel like God is leading me. If you really translate that into normal, regular English, it's sort of more of like, I don't really want to do that, <laughs> right? Sometimes it's like God's not leading me in the direction, but a lot of times it's just more like, no, I don't, I don't really feel like I want to do that at all. God's not leading me there, right? Another one of my favorite ones is you're not equally yoked. Ooh, if you grew up in a youth group, this had to do <laughs> with dating, right? You're not equally yoked to that person. I literally broke up with a girl in high school over that phrase because my youth pastor told it to me. And when I told the girl, and this is true, I'm not making this up. When I explained to the girl why we had to break up, she responded, what does that have to do with eggs? Right, yoked. <laughs> anyway, um, it's not true. Really, what we're talking about when we're equally yoked, uh, Paul was actually talking about people who worshiped idols and pagan processes and stuff like that. It's not just necessarily who you are dating. Be free, be free from equally yoked, <laughs> right? And then another one of my favorite is let's have a word of prayer. And if you are in a church situation and a person up front says this, be warned, because that could mean that you are in a 15-minute prayer in which they're really just doing a sermon, right? A word of prayer can mean anything. But in Jesus' day, when Jesus says, hey, this is how you pray, Jesus does something very unique. He doesn't just babble off and use all sorts of fancy Christian words and language and all of that good stuff. He prays, and this is really unique, uh, he, he prays the Lord's Prayer, right? He says, hey, th and they, the disciples are like, teach us how to pray. And the, that question is really loaded to a teacher. So in this ancient context, if you are a disciple and if you ask these questions, 
you would expect an enormous answer. Could last up to a day of explaining, this is how we pray. And especially a question like, this is how we pray. There's so many multi-layered facets, everything. Every rabbi sort of had a different version of what you should be praying at what time of day, for what meal, for all of that kind of stuff. And Jesus doesn't go into a diatribe of, oh, here's all the little details and the stuff you need to pray. He simply responds with the Lord's Prayer. With, the, with this simple just a couple lines. And what's even more interesting is that that prayer is recorded in the common tongue. So most of the time when you would pray in, in, in the temples or the synagogues or whatever, you'd be praying in Hebrew or maybe Greek. What Jesus prays, he prays in the language of the street, which is Aramaic. So this is fascinating. As we read scripture and as we go through this series, we have to become very, very careful, or very, very um, used to the fact that everything in the Bible is translated, and for us, it's translated like multiple times. Jesus spoke Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek, common Greek, but Greek, right? So we already have translation. In the Synoptic Gospels, when scholars look at it, the Greek reads really, really easily until you get to the words of Jesus. And then it begins to get a little bit jumbled and strange. And the reason is, is because Jesus was speaking in the common tongue of the day. And so people had to do the hard work of translating that into Greek. In Aramaic, this is amazing, there is no word, there's no word for our English version of the word salvation. When Jesus talks about salvation, the closest thing in Aramaic is come awake or come alive. So try slapping that double meaning on there whenever you encounter the word salvation. Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to come awake. I want you to come alive. And I want you to do that right now. I want you to start living in eternity right now. Eternity doesn't start somewhere else. It starts right here. You are an eternal being and that's what salvation is. You're coming awake. You're coming alive. And so when he prays, he prays in his own language. And pray casually and freely. Pray where you feel the most comfortable. Pray in your common language. And that's important because it keeps getting bigger and it keeps getting more inclusive and it keeps getting more of the common tongue, especially when we get to this crazy event called Pentecost. Um, so this is where we're going to uh, dive into some scripture this morning. Pentecost uh, is something we celebrate in the Christian tradition um, once a year, and it's, it's 50 weeks, about 50 weeks after Easter. Or, I'm sorry, seven weeks, about 50 days after Easter. Uh, and that's incredibly relevant as we get into what, what's going on here. But here we find, just a little backup here, this is Jesus has ascended. We've got the disciples, they're hanging in Jerusalem, and Pentecost isn't just a Christian festival, it was a Jewish festival first, and it's called the Festival of the Weeks basically meant like the festival of the first fruit. This is where people would come and celebrate the harvest. It had like sort of like tinges of, of covenant renewal. It's a loaded time in which the city of Jerusalem would have been crazy packed and crowded, right? And so that we found them on this festival in Jerusalem in the hotbed of all religious activity. And this is where we pick up in Acts 2. Uh, it says Pentecost. When Pentecost day arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, a couple of cool things in here. Um, when they were all together in one place, the last time that was recorded in scripture was in the book of Luke where they're talking about the last summer, the last supper, last summer, the last supper, right? So we have, a, we have a throwback line that's bringing the reader back to, oh yes, 
the Last Supper where Jesus shows the bread and the wine. He says, this is my body and it's broken for you. This is my blood and it's poured out for you. And he says, do this when you gather. Do this to remember me. So every time you gather, I want this to be a part of it. So we have to assume that as they're all gathered in one place, this might have been a part of what they were doing. And then suddenly we have this howling, uh, uh, howling of a fierce wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting uh, each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Um, can we go back one second? Sorry, Alex. Um, now, what's important here, and this, this verse often gets taken advantage of or taken too far, I think. Uh, that could be kind of strenuous for some people in this room, but I think sometimes we, we tend to uh, overemphasize this passage and make this the only thing that matters when you're worshiping and when you're talking about God. Um, but the truth of the matter here and the real crazy thing about Pentecost is that, yes, there were speaking in tongues, but they were also speaking in the languages of the other people that were around, and those people, because they were speaking in their native tongue, were able to understand, right? So when God brings tongues into the picture and all of this stuff, if it's not bringing people in and including, that ain't it, right? It's, it's about hearing something in your own language. So let's continue. This is, um, next slide there. There are pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. When they had heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these people who are speaking uh, Galileans, every one of them? How then can each of us hear the speaking in our native language? And so then this passage goes off to explain all of these different tribes that were in the city of Jerusalem. And it just so happens that all of those different tribes line up with another passage in Genesis, which is this crazy story called the Tower of Babel. And it's a mirror. It's saying just like in the Tower of Babel story, God scatters people, causes them to speak different language so they can't communicate. In this, God is bringing all the tribes together and speaking to them in their native tongue so that they can understand each other. This is what the Holy Spirit does. It causes different tribes, different people from different places to be able to come together and understand each other. And so it goes on, and this is one of my favorite passages. Uh, it says, they were all surprised and bewildered. Some asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them saying, they're full of new wine. Basically exclaiming, these people are drunks, right? Like they're just, they're just going for it. And, and Peter's response uh, is beautiful. He, he comes back to them, we have that next slide there. He comes back, Peter stood with the other 11, and he raised his voice and he declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem, know this, listen carefully to my words. Uh, these people aren't drunk, as you suspect. After all, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. That's his defense. <laughs> He's like, it can't be possible. It's nine o'clock in the morning. To take this a step further, I go on Bible Gateway uh, to study a lot. I'm like a member there. Um, and this is one of the most fantastic uh, pieces of commentary that I've ever seen in a commentary uh, on, the, on the scripture. Uh, it says on 2.15, 9 in the morning, people who got drunk usually did so at night. So there it is, confirmed for us, that's when they would get drunk. So anyway, uh, at 9 in the morning, Pentecost comes and all of a sudden they're speaking and they're, they're, the people are bewildered, right? What's happening? What's going on? And you have to think these people were in Jerusalem for a specific festival. And what's unique about this festival is that in this festival, 
It's seven weeks. Seven is a biblical number for completion. Whenever you see the number seven, you should know that something is completed and something is going to start anew. It's seven weeks from when this guy Jesus died, right? Huh, seven weeks. And then even more than that, at this festival, you would read through a little book called Ruth. And in Ruth, it tells the story of a young woman who leaves her tradition and takes on the tradition of God. There's a verse in there that says, you will be my people, your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. So you've just read through Ruth. It's seven weeks from Easter, and now we have a spirit that has come that has tried to tell us that something new is happening, right? You're prepared for something new. God is using language and the context of this festival, and as they overlap and come together, powerful things happen. And we know that because at the end of this it says this, in many other words, he testified to them and encouraged them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized. God brought about 3,000 people into the community on that day. I ask you this. When is the last time you witnessed 3,000 people change their minds on anything? Anything. Jesus used the context of the festival and the language that they understood on the core and deepest level, and that's how he changed their minds. If I look back to any significant point in my life where my mind has changed or I, I, my horizons are expanded or I accept a bigger version of what God can even be, I always come back to the fact that it was context that helped me change my mind. I got involved with something. Someone came into my life. My context shifted, and so it allowed space for my mind to change, for my spirit to expand. And if there's anything we can glean from the story that's so incredible is that we have a God who wants to be, who really, really wants to be in context with us, who wants to be in our lives, in our native tongue, in our language, expanding our horizons and changing our minds. Let's pray together. God, um, I'm just grateful uh, that you're a God who, uh, who wants to be in the room with us. Lord, I think we, we get out of context with the language we use when the language we use about you um, tries to put you out of the room, <laughs> tries to talk about you like you're somewhere else rather than right here in this space and in our hearts and in our lives. And so I pray as we begin this series about the language and the words that we use, as we talk about the language that you use, the words that you've said, that we would hold on to that fact that these words that you proclaim really do create new worlds. And they can create new worlds within us too. I pray for the language we use just this week. Would you sort of point our hearts uh, to use language that's more inclusive of you. Amen. So guys, we're going to take communion this morning.